0: back into the Old Testament, the Apostle Paul would write to us that these things that happened to the children of Israel happened for our admonition, that they have become for us patterns, types, over and over again as we study the scripture, you'll hear uh, that phrase, well this is a type of, or Moses is a type of Christ, or we see in this a, a type of the church. The reason we do that is because Paul told us that those things are there for that, that we would see a pattern. It's important that we realize that we come from a Greek educational mindset. The Greek educational mindset is a concept that a teacher speaks or teaches or lectures, and puts these ideas or their knowledge into your mind. and when we've, when we've transferred that knowledge and you pass the test you've attained that level. But that wasn't the, ever the Hebrew mindset. Think about the disciples. They didn't sit in a classroom with Jesus. What did they do? They lived with Him. They lived with Him for those three years. They went everywhere He went. They saw everything that He did. It doesn't, wasn't just what He taught. It was what He lived. It was the concept that they would become like the teacher. And when they look at prophecy... We, in a Greek mindset, look at prophecy like this, prediction and fulfillment. But the Hebrew mindset, prophecy is pattern. You see patterns in the Old Testament stories that continue the concepts that the Scriptures teach us so that we can say, not only do we read this in the Scripture, but we see the pattern. As we look at the Old Testament story. So we'll be doing that as we go through the book of Exodus. As we take a look. Exodus is where uh, the Jewish nation gets the bulk of their history. For each of us. We all have a Genesis experience. We are all come to, to life and we are created. The Exodus is that part of that journey. Where we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness. And conveyed into the kingdom of of his light. Paul would say, for you were once darkness but now you are light in Christ. We were once in one place and just like the children of Israel, we are transferred lock stock and barrel from that kingdom from that place into a new life, the promised land, right that that abundant Christian life that we seek, our rest in Christ Jesus. And so, we're going to see a lot of parallels as we go through the Scriptures and take a look, we're going to see a lot of parallels in our lives. And it has definite application for you and I. Because you and I are going to go through our own Exodus journey, aren't we? Aren't we too going to be set free from a life of bondage to sin and, and enter into that promised land of peace and rest in Jesus Christ? So we're going to gain things from their, their journey. You know what they say, those... ...who do not learn from history or what? We're doomed to repeat it, right? Well, we don't want to repeat the children of Israel's history. We want to learn. We want to be able to move forward and gain ground in our relationship with the Lord. So as we take a look, let's begin. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah... Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All these who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons for Joseph was in Egypt already. So he wants us to begin here. The nation of Israel began as 70 people. And they're going to spend, according to what God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, 400 years as foreigners in a strange land, Remember? In Genesis, Abraham was told, now your descendants are going to be slaves and they're going to be there for 400 years. It was, were they there because it was something they had done wrong? No, the Bible says because the, the sin or the iniquity of the Canaanites was not yet complete. The land of the Canaanites is what God was giving the children of Israel as a promised land. But he didn't just give it to them, take it away from them. No, he gave them 400 years to change. At the end of those 400 years, God knowing that the disease of sin that was so rampant among that people, if he allowed it to continue, would infect everyone else. And we all understand that same thing. If if you and I were out somewhere camping and we saw a rabid dog come into the camp, We're not going to try to take care of the dog and make sure that he he has a nice life. We know that that dog carries an infection that could cause the death of many others. So we would take that dog's life. And this is what we see God doing with this nation. 400 years. That's twice as old as our country. God gave that nation to repent. And so that is why, one reason why, the children of Israel were in bondage for 400 years. But there's more, we'll see as we go through. Now it says in verse 6 that Joseph died and all his brothers and all of that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty. And the land was filled with them. Most scholars agree that they grew from 70 to 2.5 million. Now they're a nation. You see, that 400 years, God took a family that had grown to 70 and built them into a nation of two and a half million. But that's not all God was doing in their lives. That's not the only thing that He was doing, and we'll see as we continue to go on. In verse 8, it says, Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. A new king. Now, a lot of times people will ask me what a good commentary is. What's a good commentary that I could use to study the Bible? Well, maybe you've heard it said before, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. So if we look at Acts chapter 7, you're going to see Stephen reciting their history, and he gives us a little clue into this Pharaoh and who this Pharaoh is. In fact, if we turn to Acts chapter 7... Acts chapter 7, right around verse 18, it says now, uh, let's look at 17, but when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. Now, when we look at the New Testament, here's the cool thing that we get to do. We get to back away from the English and clarify exactly what's being said. When you and I say the word another, we can mean a variety of things. If I break a pencil, I could say, could you give me another? That means I want another pencil. But say you brought to me, we're in a restaurant, and they brought to me the wrong dessert. I might hand them back that dessert and say, no, I want another, a a different dessert. Listen, here's what's being said here. The Greek word is heteros. It means another of a different kind. The kind of Pharaoh that was there when Joseph was there, he was those uh, uh, the better one, the tribes that had come from Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob had understood the Semitic lifestyle. And so they weren't threatened by the children of Israel. But now a totally different Pharaoh is on the scene. He's not a Semitic tribesman anymore. We're 400 years advanced. We're 400 years... Or nearly four hundred years forward into the future. So what we have here is a different pharaoh. In fact, we know from Josephus that this is probably Thumos the third. Thumos the third, Josephus tells us, would have been the pharaoh at the time of Moses, Moshe. And so he arises, but he is feeling threatened. Now you can imagine seventy people aren't very threatening necessarily for a nation. Two and a half million become a little bit more threatening, don't they? And so look what happens. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than us. So come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and it happen in the event of war, that they also join our enemies and fight against us. And so go up out of the land. So therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them. With their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities. Not pyramids. Supply cities. Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them. Look at that. The more they afflicted them. The more they multiplied and grew. Have you learned that about God's people? Because the surest way to cause a church to grow. Is to afflict the church. It's interesting. I I heard it said that that John MacArthur would pray for affliction. He would pray for affliction for his congregation, for his church, because he knew that they... Now, not many of us are in our prayer closet praying for affliction. But the Bible tells us that it's in the furnace of affliction that we grow and that we develop. Think about the church in Jerusalem, remember? And when the persecution arose, what happened to the church in Jerusalem? It branched out all over the place. Pretty soon, when they brought, when they brought uh, uh, John before the, the Sanhedrin, and, they, and Peter was there with them, and they said, these are the guys who have turned the whole world upside down. Right? How did they do that? It was persecution. Persecution comes in. It's like fanning the flames of a fire. What happens with a fire when the wind's blowing on it? It spreads it all over the place. And that's what's going on here with the nation of Israel. They're they're growing. They're becoming mighty. They're becoming powerful. And listen, this is another thing that God is doing with them because they are growing strong. Because of this slavery, the nation of Egypt, on the other hand, life is a little bit easier for them. They get to spend more time in a lazy boy and holding on to the remote control and And fanning through the channels looking for something to do. While the children of Israel are out there doing the work. Which people is becoming stronger? Which people is becoming weaker? Can we trust God in our life when we face affliction to realize that God is using that affliction to grow us. To grow our muscles, to make us strong, to prepare us for the challenge that lies ahead. There was once a man, he called out to God and said, Lord, I want to do something so mighty for you, God. I, I just, just give me something to do. And, and he would pray over and over again, but he, he hadn't quite heard from the Lord. And then one day, a voice from heaven came. And he said, yes, I want you to go out front where there is a big rock, and I want you to push that rock. And the young man went out there, as all excited as he could be, he ran out to the rock, he laid his shoulder into it, and he pushed with all his might. The rock didn't move. And he went home that night, back into the house, all dejected. Man, the Lord called me to push the rock, and I couldn't move it. And the next day he got up with renewed determination. He went back out to that rock. He laid his shoulder into it and with all his might he pushed and he pushed all day long, but he never moved the rock an inch. Day after day, after week, after month passed, and still he never moved the rock. And finally, he's so depressed, he can't even hardly get up out of bed anymore, and he cries out to the Lord, Lord, I'm a failure. You called me to, to push the rock, and I can't move it at all. And the Lord said to him, I never called you to move the rock. I called you to push it. And all that time that you spent pushing it, your shoulders grew strong. Your back grew strong. And now you're ready for the challenge that sits before you. Sometimes we, like that man, think we're supposed to make that move. We're supposed to make affliction scatter from before us. And life is supposed to be a bed of roses, all easy and smiles all the time. And sometimes it is. But we grow, we will grow when we're pushing the rock. And so when we see those times come, the children of Israel, they don't understand, but what has God done for them in 400 years? They think they've been forgotten. They think God doesn't remember them anymore. But He took them from 70 to 2.5 million. He made them strong. He made a mighty, hardy people by the affliction that they went through so that they are ready for the journey. Because listen... While the children of Israel are in bondage, two things are happening. One, God is preparing His children for the land. Two, God is preparing the land for His children. But God is always moving. Something is always happening. We have probably all felt like, "Wow, oh, I'm on the shelf, I'm not doing anything, nothing's happening. But the reality is, Whatever God has in your life is there for a reason to prepare you, to get you ready for that next challenge, that next thing that we're going to face down the line. So we want to have eyes to see, God, this is you working around me. God, this is you guiding. This is you directing. And I can trust you, and I can believe you, and I can put my hope in you. And so, the Scripture goes on and says, Now, not only did they multiply and grew, but they were in dread of the children of Israel. Egypt was afraid of them. Now, they probably wouldn't think Egypt was afraid of them at all. But God tells us what's going on in the heart. And ultimately, the promise that God gave Abraham was when your people leave, they're going to leave, they're going to get paid to go. And we're going to see that. When the children of Israel leave, the Egyptians are all going to be giving them money to get. They're going to give them their stuff so they'll go. Because of the fear that they have. This work that God is doing that they can't see. Sometimes we don't see that that hand of God in our life, folks. But God's hand is there moving and making. So... The Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar in brick in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. They had to do hard work. And so God made them into a hardy people. And the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, midwives of whom the name of one was Shipra, and the name of the other was Pua. Shipra means beauty. And Pua means splendor. So he took beauty and splendor and he said, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. Listen to what's happening. Because if we're not looking at it clearly, we'll miss the attempt of Satan to to thwart the work of God. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, God said that the seed of the woman was going to crush the head of the serpent. So Satan knew somewhere along the line there'll be a seed of a woman. A little further on, God gave that promise to Abraham, right? That the Messiah would come through him to Isaac. To Jacob he narrowed it down to a people and now all of a sudden Pharaoh gets the idea to kill all the young men and if all the young men are killed wipe out the nation thwart the plan of God there's always more going on than what meets the eye and we're going to see this same plan happen over and over again aren't we The nation of Israel trying to be exterminated. Haven't we seen it in in history again and again? The nation of Israel going through these times. Well, these midwives, let's look what they do. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. The Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but the fear of man is a snare. If we adjust our actions and we base them on the fear of man, what's man going to think of me? What's this person or that person going to think of me? And that is why we make the decisions that we make. It's going to lead us to a snare, a trap. But if we function in the fear of God, that is a fear of disappointing our Heavenly Father. I want to live my life so that I bring honor and glory to God period. And when that is our, our, our basis for our judgment and our decisions, the Bible says that's the beginning of wisdom. You're going to do the right thing. Listen, midwives in the Jewish culture were typically women who were barren. They were not women who had their own children. And though they were barren, they wanted to have something to do that they could be around children so that they would perform the work of a midwife. And we're going to see these two ladies, beauty and splendor, unable to have children, working as midwives, getting the call from the king to kill the male children, but fearing God and saying, no, I'm going to do what God wants me to do. And so they, they in the fear of God, obey what God's word declares, the sanctity of life. And they move forward without destroying the young men. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Hey, the the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives can come to them. Remember I said that God had them serve with rigor? That God made them hardy and strong. And so these midwives, the Bible doesn't say that they're lying. These midwives are, are saying, listen, the Hebrew women, when they're giving birth, if you're not Johnny on the spot, they're going to have that baby up, and they're, back at, they're, they're, they're just right back at it again. Working in the field, whatever it was that they were doing, because they were a strong and hearty people. You know, the interesting thing that you'll discover, if you get to travel around the world and you go to places where they don't have hospitals... You go to places where they don't have doctors. You go to places like the Amazon Rainforest, off the Amazon River, and you see how the, the women have their children there. It's a whole lot different than how we do it. Yet, they seem to be fine. They'll have their babies. Now, sure, there's a higher mortality rate because of sickness and things of that nature, but the way they have them and what they're able to do afterwards, you're talking about... Some hardy people. And this is what the Scripture is saying here. They were hardy people, and the midwives wouldn't kill the male children. And so, look at verse 20. So therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. Again, Pharaoh tries to destroy the people. Again, the people multiply. Again, the people grow strong. Now, if you were one of the people, I promise you, you'd be sitting there in the pits of, of the Egyptian masonry where you're out there stomping into bricks and making the mud for the bricks, and you'd be thinking, Where is God? Well, how are we here, God? What's happening? But was God working? Was God moving? And we can see, as we look in the Scriptures, can't we? See God moving and preparing His people that the things that they were going through were necessary. The question is, can we trust in the sovereignty of God in our own lives that the things that we face day to day are necessary, preparing us for the work that lies ahead? Are we always looking for deliverance? You know, when we read the seven letters to the seven churches, you come to the church of of, uh, Smyrna. In the church of Smyrna, you remember what Jesus said to them? Does he say to them who are the persecuted church, be faithful until I rescue you? Or does he say, be faithful unto death, and you will receive the crown of life? There's not always... A supernatural deliverance to spare us from hard times. But there is always a purpose. And we can trust God. We can put our faith and trust in Him for what we face. And look at verse 21 So it was because the midwives feared God, He provided households for them. They couldn't have their own children. Beauty and splendor could could not have their own children, but because of the fear of God, because they wanted to honor their Father in heaven, and they acted in obedience toward Him, God gave them families. God gave them their families. God will be a debtor to no man. Scripture goes on to say, So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. So now the call comes. We're going to throw all the babies, the male children, into the Nile River. Now this next chapter that we're going to look at tonight is just like God. Here's the government's plan. Throw all the children into the river. And so God, we make our plans, and God laughs, they're going to throw the babies. God's going to not only spare the deliverer of Israel, he's going to have Pharaoh foot the bill. Pharaoh's going to educate him, Pharaoh's going to feed him, Pharaoh's going to pay his mother to nurse him. And Moses will deliver his people. This is the way that God works. Take a look. And a man of the house of Levi went and took a wife of a daughter of Levi. The Bible tells us their names a little further on. His name is Amron and her name is Jochebed. So the women or the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. You notice it went straight to the mom seeing him. Because I don't know if dads see a beautiful child. Especially the first child. I mean, I don't I don't want to make anybody feel. Bad, but when my firstborn son, I was expecting something that looked totally different than what the doctor showed me. I, I looked at Kathy and I swear to you, I said, He looks like a lizard. <laughs> now, to Kathy, he was beautiful. To me, I was like, Ooh, man. I've seen the picture book, they all look prettier than that. The good news is, isn't it or at least for me the good news was as he got older he did get prettier (laughs) but here we see moses mom looking at him and saying he's a beautiful child listen the hebrew tradition says that moses was so beautiful when he would walk down the road the people would stop to stare at him now we don't know that's their that's their legend and tradition The point is that the mom looked at Moshe, looked at Moses and said, I know God has a plan for my son. You know, we can all do that with our children. God has a plan for all of our children. And this mother was willing to see it. And so she wouldn't just give her child over to the government to have him cast into the Nile. She hid him for three months. But look what happens. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him and daubed it with asphalt and pitch and put the child in it and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. Man, can you imagine doing that with one of your children? Three months old. I, I, if I keep him, they're going to take him and kill him. So what did she do? She put him in an ark, a basket. And she lined the outside of that basket with pitch, with tar. And she laid him in the very river where they were throwing the the bodies of the the little baby boys. At the time, full of of crocodiles, I'm sure, coming for for the meal that was being offered by the Egyptian soldiers. But she knew God had a plan and she trusted God so much She put her baby in a basket and let him go. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? The Bible tells us, the Bible tells in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, around verse 23 24, that Jochebed and Amram had faith. By faith, they put Moses in that ark and set him loose in the river by faith how does faith come faith comes by hearing the word of god in their study and reading of god's word they believed the god that they hadn't heard from for nearly 400 years while they were in captivity she believed god has a plan for my son and i trust him Maybe she learned that from the story of Abraham. You remember the story of Abraham? You know, Abraham had two sons, right? He loved them both, didn't he? Ishmael, the son of the flesh, and, and, and Isaac, son of the spirit. He loved them both the same, but then the day came when God said, you got to let Ishmael go. And Abraham let him go. What did he give him? One bag of water. Abraham wasn't a poor man. Abraham had flocks and herds, and he could, have, he could have lavished upon him gold, silver, all the donkeys that could have carried him. He could have gave him a giant caravan that would usher him off into life, and he could have made sure that Ishmael had everything that he needed. But he gave him one bag of water. Gave him one. Remember I told you about Patterns. When the Bible talks about the the flesh, what does it say? Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. And what do we see Abraham doing with Ishmael? He makes no provision. Let me ask you this. Did God promise Abraham he'd take care of Ishmael? He did. He said, Abraham, you give your son to me and I'll take care of him. So Abraham gave him to the Lord with one sack of water. And he ran out of that water. You remember the story? And his mother laid him beneath the bush because she didn't want to watch her boy die. And she went off someplace else. But what happened? Did God leave him there to die? No. He delivered them. And what did Ishmael learn? To trust in Abraham's riches? Or to trust in God. He learned to trust in God. God made a mighty nation out of him. Yes, today, Ishmael's people and Isaac's people are still fighting. But That doesn't mean Ishmael didn't come face to face with God Almighty. And that God didn't deliver him and work in his life maybe that's what Jochebed read and when she looked at that in the scriptures when she considered how god was there she took moisture she took her little baby she put him in the bulrushes and she just let him go the bible tells us then and his sister stood afar off to know what would be done with him so let's look and the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. And she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew's children. She knew. She knew the law. She knew what her father had commanded. But listen, her father had a unique problem. Thumos III... He had no sons, all daughters. And she saw this Hebrew child. She had compassion when he wept. And so she took him as her own. She took Moses, and she's going to name him. And his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, so Moses' sister Miriam comes running down, to where little baby Moses is in the arms of Pharaoh's daughter, and says, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said, Yes, go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Jockbed, who had the faith by reading and studying and knowing God's Word that she could trust God, letting her child go in the Nile River, walking away, not only is her child rescued and delivered, she gets to raise him until he's weaned. She gets to teach him about his heritage. She gets to instill in him the Most High God. All because of what? Faith. She believed. She trusted God in what she was facing. Look, that's not all. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you wages. She got paid to raise Moses. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moshe, Moses, which means drawn out, because he was drawn out, because I drew him out of the water. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, one verse, 40 years just went by. Did you feel it happen? That happens in the Bible sometimes. You're going along and we're talking about the baby and the baby being weaned and now he goes and... Bam, 40 years. 40 years, Moses trained up to be the next in line to be Pharaoh. But something interesting happens. Somewhere, according to to, tradition, according to tradition, Josephus tells us Thumos had a son. Doesn't matter. Moishe was the oldest, he would have been the next in line to be Pharaoh. Maybe he thought that would be a good way for him to take care of his people. We don't know, but it says, It came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. Listen, while we're considering this, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Again, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. Hebrews eleven twenty four, because right around this verse... This is happening. Listen, by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer the affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. When he became of age, 40 years old, he goes to his mother and says, I don't want to be Pharaoh. I want to go back to my people. He gives up all of that to go back to his people. And when he goes back, he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. So he looked this way, he looked that way, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Well, that's going to work out good, right? Because whenever God calls us to something, it doesn't matter how we do it, does it? We can do it just as an act of our flesh, right? Because Abraham taught us that lesson too, didn't he? With the whole Isaac Ishmael thing. I mean, God promised me a son, but it doesn't really matter how I have that son, does it? I'll just go take this other woman and we'll have a child and we'll call that the promise of God fulfilled. And what did God say? No. What does Paul teach us in Galatians? Do you not know that what is begun in the spirit cannot be completed in the flesh? We cannot accomplish the work of God by the power of the flesh. It is accomplished through the power of the Spirit. For it is not by might, nor by power, but by the Spirit, says the Lord, right? It is God's Spirit that does the work. What is God looking for from us? He's looking for us to trust in His ability and submit to His sovereignty. He's looking for that surrender, to just come to God and say, Lord, I surrender. Holy surrender to you. Here I am. And then, bam, he empowers you to do the work that you could never do on your own before. But it takes that moment where we come to him that way. Is Moses ready for that yet? Moses got the idea, right? He's, he's got all the best learning. He's got all, this, all these connections with Pharaoh. I mean, he calls Pharaoh grandpa right? Pharaoh's daughter was his mom. I mean, he he stepped out of the line of, of becoming the next Pharaoh, but he still had power, prestige. And he was a pretty strong guy, apparently, because he just killed the taskmaster. He just took him and beat him and buried him in the sand. But look what happens. So when he went out the second day, so the next day he goes out, behold, two Hebrew men are fighting. And he says to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? And he said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? Whoa. Remember that whole part where, where Moses looked to the left and the right and there was nobody around? You know how often you get caught when you look to the left and the right and you think nobody's around? The next day, it's common knowledge among the Hebrew apparently, because what are the odds that Moses would just bump into two guys and one of them knew that he had killed the Egyptian? And literally, the guy saying, "Who are you? What are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian?" Moses thinking he could deliver the people, but listen, key, remember I told you, prophecy is pattern. Moses is the deliverer of his people, if you will, the savior. But the first time he comes to the people, he is rejected. Remind us of anybody else? The first time that Jesus comes, he is rejected. Pattern. Fulfillment. We can see this plan of God working. Well, look what happens. So... So Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. So he's going to freak out. And by the way, it's a capital offense. If an Egyptian killed an Egyptian, that person was to die. Period. So when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. Now this is interesting. Moses runs away from Pharaoh, goes to Gentile land... To Midian, sits down by a well. When he sits down by the well, look what takes place. Probably most of us have seen this scene, right? In the movie, The Ten Commandments. You guys remember Charlton Heston beats all them bad shepherds up? No? I'm the only one who saw that? Anyhow. (laughs) So here we go. So it says, um, Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. See, the girls would get there because he didn't have any, any sons. So his daughters would get there and they'd get everything ready to water their flock. And then the other shepherds would come and scare away all their flock and water their own. That way they didn't have to do any of the work. But this day... Moses was there. And I kind of like how Charlton Heston does it. He just runs around with a big stick, swats all them shepherds away. Get out of here. And lets the girls water their flock. They come in and they're able to water. now look what happens. When they came to Ruel, by the way, his name aka is also Jethro. When they came to Ruel, their father, he said, "How is it that you have come so soon today? How did you get here so quick?" Because usually they had all this trouble at the well. And they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, And where is he? Now any man who has seven daughters, who are the shepherds of his flock, and a man delivers them, he's going to want to know where the fellow is. Where is this guy? I could I could maybe whittle down the six daughters right now. So... Let's see what happens. So he said to his daughters, where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may have bread. And listen to this. Then Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Zipporah his daughter to Moses. Zipporah his daughter to Moses. So Moses marries a Gentile. Remember we talked about pattern? Pattern. Moses takes a Gentile bride. Reminds me a lot of my Savior, Jesus Christ, who also takes a Gentile bride. And later, Moses returns to deliver the people, just like Jesus Christ will return and again deliver his people, the nation of Israel, as we see come to that time of end times of the book of revelation when god again turns his attention not to his gentile bride but to the nation of israel we'll see as we continue studying now again he has zipporah as his bride and moses is content didn't paul write to us contentment with godliness is great gain so we can it's it's been said you can take moses live and life and divide it into 40 40 year periods of time 40 years learning how to be somebody, and then 40 years learning how to be nobody. He went to all the best schools, had all the best training, tried to work this work in the flesh, didn't work out. He ends up, according to the Bible, on the backside of the desert. Then I have news for you. This is not the backside of the desert. I have seen it. It doesn't look like this. Idaho looks like paradise. Compared to the back side of the desert. In fact, Kathy and I took pictures of the back side of the desert last time we were there. I'll show you sometime. If I had them tonight, I'd put them up. But I didn't think about it ahead of time. Moses goes to the back side of the desert to be a nobody. He thinks, well, that's it. I blew it. I had my chance. You ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like I had my chance? You know, I used to think way back when I was like 17 years old... When my, my dad left my mom, I got mad at God and I went into rebellion against God. And when I did that, from from 17, pretty much from 17 to 30, I did everything in direct opposition. to. If God said right, I went left. If He said up, I went down. I went as far away from Him as I could possibly go. But when I was 30, the Lord brought me back around and he brought me back into the fold, and I remember sitting on my porch and mourning over the lost years, the wasted time, all that that was gone and I remember sitting on that back porch and thinking, "Oh man, if only I could have all those years back, but you know they 're just gone, and I, you know i don 't know what God could ever do or what god 's going to do from this point. Sometimes we can think so much about what we think we've lost, that we forget the fact that God is still working right now. God's still moving. God is still moving stones. God is still making things happen. He's still accomplishing His perfect plan. Well, check it out. As I'm sitting there on the the patio and I have my Bible with me, and, and I'm just flipping through. I'm not even playing Bible roulette, you know, where you close your eyes and point. I wasn't doing that. I was just kind of flipping through the Bible and, and just reading in a variety of places, and I came to Joel 2:25. And you read the chapter two of the Book of Joel, which, as we continue through the Old Testament, we'll get there, not tomorrow, but soon. As we go through and we look at it, it says, "Now listen, if you're disobedient, and you won't listen to my word and you're rebellious." Then I'm going to send the locusts and they're going to eat everything. They're going to eat every branch and they're going to eat every piece of grass and they're going to eat every leaf. And you're going to look at your life and you're going to think it's all been destroyed. It's all gone. But then God said, if you return to me, I'll give you back the years the locusts ate. Do you hear how he said it? I'll give you back the years the locusts ate. And I read that and I thought, wow. So Jesus, when he taught, he said, no man putting his hand to the plow and looking back is worthy of the kingdom of God, right? Because if we're spending all our time looking back at what we don't have, we're not any good for what we do have. That's why Paul would say, forgetting those things which lie behind, I press on. Let those things go. Because today, we have right now. And God has a plan in today, right now. And God was working here in Moses' life. That's why he was able to find contentment. It says, And Zipporah bore him a son. And he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Listen, this is the key to contentment. He just told us. The key to contentment is realizing I am a stranger in a strange land. This place is not my home. For Abraham endured because he was looking for a city that had foundations, whose builder and maker was God. What does that mean? He was looking for a solid, permanent city. He was looking for that permanent place that he could say, this is it. This is never going to end. Are we going to find that here? I'm not going to find it here. In 2005, someone somewhere in the middle of Detroit built my Harley Davidson. And that was the last time it was anywhere close to perfect. And from that day forward, pieces have been falling off. It's okay. It was never intended to be permanent. And if I'm thinking that that's going to be the thing, that thing, that house, that job, that's going to be the thing that brings contentment to my life, I'm going to be missing it. But if I look at like Moses, I'm a stranger here. This place is not my home. And I'm looking for that city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Contentment is found in understanding our role as a pilgrim. We're passing through. And the home we're going to? That's a lot better than this one. Amen? Well, Scripture goes on. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. And the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage. (coughs) And they cried out... (laughs) And their cry, holy cow, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. He remembered his promise. What's that mean? Did he forget them? No. You know what this tells us? 400 years are up. Pharaoh died, his son. His son is Amnon-Hotep II. He's going to reign. That's the Pharaoh that Moses is going to deal with. Amnon-Hotep. And as as Amnon-Hotep steps up, God says it's time. Moses, 40 years learning to be somebody, 40 years learning to be nobody, it's about time I go knock on Moses' door. 80 years old when his ministry begins. Is it ever too late for us to start? There are some who began their ministry at 12. Is it ever too early? I think Josiah was 8. Is it ever too early? Is it ever too late? It's always just right when it's the call of God and it's God moving. Well, the Bible says, And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledge them god remembered them god's about to have a burning bush experience with moses but we're gonna have to save that burning bush experience for next time but we are gonna have some fun tonight i don't know how many are aware vbs has been going on all week and the kids have been having a ball and they've been learning all these dances and they've been teaching us older folks all these dances. So in a, in a couple of minutes we're going to have them come in and we're going to have them uh, close us out. But uh, before they get here, why don't we take a moment and lift us this time up in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you so much, God, that we can be gathered in this place. We thank you so much, Father, for the truth of your word. We thank you, God, that your word declares to us. Faith comes by hearing your word. Father, as we take this time out of our day, out of our our schedule, and we hear God's word, and we hear God's deliverance, and we see God move, Oh, Lord, it's so awesome to think that, God, as you train us, as you show us through your word, that we maybe too can have the faith like Jochebed to to set our children loose in the hands of God. Maybe we can learn like Abraham to put our children in your hands as a God who sees and hears. Father, maybe we can come to the place where we realize that You are so dependable and that no problem is too big for You to look at or too too big for You to be able to solve. We can see that. We can know that. Father, help us to realize those things and learn, Father, from these things that are set forth before us as an example that we can know that we know that our God is mighty to save, that his arm is not too short, that his hand is not too weak, that he is able to do all these things above and beyond what we can even think or imagine. Lord, help us to grow strong like your people. Help us to be mighty, help us to trust you. And Father, we will give You all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.